So you think about like a treadmill, right? Like the fast, you can kind of like accelerate your career. Obviously there are sacrifices. You do need to work really hard and that does take away from other stuff. But um, I would say like, if you think about like what you want to do your career, and let's take me, for example, going down engineering leadership, the amount of roles that are up higher and higher, they all diminish, right? And so the way I, I always kind of yeah. viewed it was, okay, I can go really fast right now. And then whenever I'm kind of done, I will just stop, you know, stop the treadmill and then just be content at this level, right? Because it's very hard to get back on the treadmill if you kind of take that stop. And Welcome to the Tech Guide Podcast. I am the show's host, Ryan Atkinson. Everyone is wanting to break into tech and have a successful career. The only problem is how? We'll use this podcast to sit down with people that have broken into tech, pivoted their career, or have actual advice to young working professionals. Today, we have Neuraj Jain on the podcast to talk about how he chose the path of software engineering and landing a role at Microsoft, how he managed 45 people while at Bolt, the characteristics of the highest performers, and the framework he implemented to get rid of ambiguity. We then end talking about obtaining an AI certification from Stanford, living in Austin, Texas, and the communities here. So make sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast and share with any other friends that may want a tech guide. You can also learn more about us at techguide.org. Naraj, thank you so much for being here. I'm super, super excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really excited uh, to give some advice to some folks and share some stories with you. I want to talk about like your not you're not your working life, but what you do outside of work because you are a wine wizard. You're pursuing WSET. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but can you first tell us what this is and why you wanted to pursue it? Absolutely. So I guess think not the W said. So in the wine world, there's kind of two big global organizations. So the Court of Master Sommeliers and WSET. So the Wine Spirit Education and Trust. So I'd say the big difference between the two is the CMS is kind of more focused for sommelier, people who are on a floor pouring wine at restaurants, et cetera. And then WSET is a little bit more educational focused. So people who tend to go farther teach seminars, maybe you're beverage directors at restaurants, but again, more on teaching seminars. Anyway, so it was funny. I was actually at a birthday, like one of my, my birthday party, um, and I was in San Luis Obispo, which is really close to this wine country called Paso Robles in the central coast of California. And so I, you know, I was there, I was going to this winery, just kind of blabbing a lot at the, at this vineyard called Denner. And my friend was like, you know, like you talk so much about wine, but you're not certified. Like you don't know anything. And I was like, you know what? Like that's honestly really good feedback. And so that actually prompted me to go down this whole rabbit hole of uh, going down and doing my WSET studies. And so did my level two and level three back in 2021. And I'm currently going for my diploma, which will probably take about two or three years to finish, but really, really love that as my side hobby. And then obviously with you, I met you at Pickleball, which is my, I guess, more physical activity and sport hobby. It, it's incredible because I didn't even know you could get certified in wine. So when I was like looking this up or you were telling me about it, I was like, that's a thing. Like you can get a certification in basically anything nowadays. So <laughs> applaud to you because I think that is very, very cool. Um, I want to start in your early... Yeah, I want to start in your early career because you got your degree in electrical and computer engineering at UT, Texas. Did you always know you wanted to be a software engineer or how did that really get going and say, I want to study electrical and computer engineering? Yeah, that's a really good question. Very interesting backstory. So when I was applying to colleges, I so I grew up in Houston in the suburb called Clear Lake. So my mom was like, hey, you know, you're either going to go to an Ivy League school or we're sending you to Texas. That was kind of the 
the deals you made with me. So I actually applied, I wanted to go into finance initially. So I applied early decision to Wharton, to the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, and I didn't get in. So, you know, that kind of killed my finance dreams. And so I was talking to her and she said, <laughs> if you, if you just do engineering, you can always go figure out what you want to do with your career later. It's just a very good hobby to, or a very good degree to start with. And then you can figure the rest out later. Yeah. So she was actually, she's a software engineer. She works in the aerospace industry. So she does a lot of defense stuff, which is super cool. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try electrical engineering. And I fell in love. It's like the first day of the first class I was doing assembly and like this very low level basic programming. And I was like, this is so cool. It's very logical. I can understand how things move around. And I fell in love. Um, so to answer your question, it wasn't what I wanted to do from the get-go, but as soon as, as I was a freshman in college, fell in love with it. Yeah. What was that first course that made you fall in love with it? Do you remember it? Yeah, Do you remember like cool. a teacher? Like what course was it? Yeah, it was called Introduction to Computing. The professor was amazing. Um, so like, I mean, okay, we, we literally started coding in binary, so it's zeros and ones. And I think we had to do a, a merge sort. So this is some more complicated technical thing, but basically it's how you sort to lists of numbers. And so anyway, you're typing in zeros and ones, right? So these yep. computers back in the day, everything is bit-based, right? So even the image, the sound, everything is just zeros and ones transmitting. And they wanted us to really internalize it and understand that. So back in the day, these are four-bit computers, but you have 16 options. So add, multiply, whatever. And you can do really crazy stuff just with that, sort of those basic building blocks. And so started with binary and assembly. And then what you see nowadays, these very higher level languages, they're all just like translated down into the, the core basic building blocks as mentioned. And so they wanted us to kind of start from the bottom, which I thought was a really cool approach to it. That class like made me fall in love with it. And then in the future, as I got later on in my college career, I really love computer architecture. So working with more embedded processing systems. So we actually like flashed a program onto a chip. So there was a, you know, the game snake where you like eat the snake and whatever, like we built like a two pair version of that onto a screen. That was, it was really, really cool. And I think it just like really solidified this idea that it seemed like magic, right? You turn on your Game Boy or PSP or whatever back in the day. I, I know now how it all just like, it just like very basic sort of like computer registers and all this stuff, which was really cool and, and magical. That's really, really cool. And then you got your first internship with Microsoft in 2013. Tell us about that. I mean, how did that, how did that really come to be? How did you get into Microsoft, a big tech company, one of the biggest in the world? I mean, how did you break into yeah. Microsoft for an internship? Ryan, I got, I got a one word it's for you with luck, honestly. So the freshman year internship was, there, there was nothing else but luck, but there, there was something insightful that I kind of learned from it. So obviously I was not a good programmer back then, right? And so I go into my interview. I remember he asked me this question. I actually remember the question. It was like, given three sides of a triangle, like tell if it's like scalene or obtuse or uh, isosceles, whatever, all the triangle terms. And so yeah. Yeah, whatever, I do that. It's, it's kind of okay because I'm just a little freshman at that point. But I remember he was like, <laughs> tell me like something that you're really passionate about. So when I was in high school, I, I played tennis growing up. And so I started a tennis racket stringing business uh, to make extra money on the side. So my teammate would pop their strings and then I would do it like for 10 bucks. I could do it racket in probably 20 minutes, just have it right next to my Netflix on my TV, right? So I, I would like, like, I mean, for a kid, I was like, I probably need $3,000 for the course of my high school career. But you know, that was like significant money back, back then. Yeah. So I tell him, I'm like, okay, like these are the different types of machines. Like this is like pull weight and drop weight and 
there's like hybrids and whatever. And I just like go on this long and I start talking. I like realized I blew way over the interview time, but it was a passion, I think. Like, so he was like, okay, this kid yeah. doesn't really know how to, to code yet, but like he can get passionate about like topics that interest him. And so we're going to take a bet on him and we're going to kind of give him this opportunity. So, um, and then also like as part of that whole luck thing, I remember I was supposed to go to Redmond. So obviously they're headquartered in Redmond outside of Seattle. And then they canceled on me like the last second. And so they're like, can we fly you out to California? Like, really sorry. Like there was some scheduling mishap at Redmond. I was like, I don't care if like it's Redmond, it's California. Like they're all the same to me at this point. I'm just traveling from, from Austin anyway. So I feel like, you know, I mean, obviously I did okay, I think in the interview, but I think maybe they felt bad that they rescheduled on me last minute, but they gave me, they threw me a bun. But anyway, so once they, like, once I got that freshman year internship, I really appreciated them for that, right? Like they kind of took a chance on me. They really, yeah, like I said, they kind of just took a chance on me. And so second, third year, I was like, okay, like I want to just stick with this company, do three years of internships with them, go start their full time, hit the ground running and take it, like kind of pay them back for investing in me. So, yeah. That's really cool. So it sounds like, I mean, maybe it would have been, it was a little bit of luck, but I mean, in high school, you're doing this really cool, like tennis string business where yeah, you're just working on it while you're like watching Netflix, but this was something you're actually passionate about. And you could say that in the interview, but I imagine from a Microsoft like recruiter standpoint, like, wow, this kid actually gets it. Like he was doing this in high school and he is passionate about this. Like, let's take a chance on him. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it, people probably kind of psych themselves out. Um, Again, they're, they're not going to expect you to come in and be the whiz kid, the kid who solves all yeah. the insanely hard lead to problems or whatever, because you just don't have that experience here. Like what's more, what's mm. actually more impressive or what's better for you when you're looking at these internships is to be flexible and, and humble and just open to learning because it takes you many, many years to kind of get that expertise. And they know that, and they just want people who will have a good attitude and, and are willing to kind of put in the hard work to learn. They must have known that you worked really hard because you eventually transitioned to full-time with Microsoft. Um, take us through that transition. I mean, was this conversations you were having during your senior year where it's like, hey, we want to bring you on full-time? Yeah. Was there any pushing by your end where it's like, I want to work here full-time? Or how'd that look? Absolutely. So basically, like the way internships work, right? So you have a 12-week internship. At the six-week mark, you kind of know if you're on track or off track. As an intern going to another intern, Maybe the bar is a little bit lower as an intern going into full-time. These are more serious conversations, right? Because if you think about it, yeah. companies holding open a headcount now for almost like nine or 10 months, which is like very unheard of. And we'll get to that probably in my later startup yeah. experience. So they're really, really kind of taking down you. And so um, basically as my junior year internship ended, they did extend an offer. I did want to see what other options were out there and kind of yeah. negotiate so I, I got offers, I think, from Uber, Yelp, and a few other tech companies at the time. But what stood wow. Microsoft out was um, they actually leveled me up. So they were like, hey, you're three, you did three internships. We're going to count that as a year of experience. We're going to bring you in at level 60 or whatever, like I, how they do their numbers. Yeah. Which I was like, okay, great. This was like a no-brainer opportunity. So I could start at a higher level, hit the ground yeah. running. I already had context. I knew my team really well. That's kind of why I decided to start there full time. Yeah. Do you... Is there any part of you or would you recommend people to stay at the same internship or same company while interning? Or is there any part of you that regrets not like jumping around from internship to internship? So my statement would be at large companies, it's very hard to talk about culture. Generally speaking, Microsoft does not have mm -hmm. one 
homogenous culture. It is very much the culture of your manager. Like their manager will determine how happy you yeah. are, how good your life is. And so if you get a good manager, I don't see a reason to leave because it is kind of a crapshoot. If you go to a different company, you could get, it's all just randomized at that point. On the flip side, when we talk about the bold experience later, I did find that potentially something that maybe hindered me in, in my career was you learn from people who are used to doing things one way, right? The Microsoft way. And Microsoft has figured out a lot of really amazing stuff. They set up really amazing processes, whatever. It is still very valuable to have a diversity of opinions. And so for you as an individual to get that diversity of working experience surely can be valuable. I think it kind of depends. Like if you're pretty set on, you like this manager, you can see yourself working for them, learning from them, et cetera. Yeah. Double, right. Like you can move so much quicker than if you swap around. If you're kind of lukewarm on it, if you're still not totally sure what you want to do, absolutely. Diversifying will give you the ability to know what you like and more importantly, what you don't like. That's interesting. And you diversified in your career because you moved to Bolt in June 2018. You've been there for four and a half years now. So tell us why Bolt at this time and what's like your role at Bolt? Yeah. Uh, okay. So why Bolt at that time? So I let me, I have to kind of explain my role at Microsoft because it was really, really interesting. So I was on the PowerPoint team. Being on Office, they touched billions of users, literally. And so that was like an unbeatable experience. But what was really cool is they were moving away from these monolithic application releases into microservice deploys. And so my particular product was called PowerPoint Designer. And so it was AI-backed. How do you format slides for both that you get away from like, you know, white slide with three blank, three black bullet text points? It would actually create a smart art view or that's an image. Like it was, it was really, really cool. And they were deploying this thing like once a month, which was kind of a new shared uh, from like these three-year big office releases. Um, so, you know, obviously there was some big company sort of uh, shakeup. So another VP kind of wanted the AI mandate. And so a lot of people in my leadership chain yeah. were like at Microsoft. And so that's what prompted me to start looking. So I was living in San Francisco, taking uh, Caltrain down to Mountain View. So I was commuting an hour and a half door to door each way. And I was like, okay, I want to oh, go to man. a San Francisco-based startup with less than 10 engineers, and I did not care about the domain. So Bolt was five engineers at the time. It was like a 25-person Series A company trying to revolutionize how we do e-commerce checkout. And to my point earlier about the diversity of opinions, one senior guy from Google, one senior guy from Facebook, Airbnb, Twitter, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, literally, they all came from different companies. Oh, yeah. And so that was that sort of melt, like that melting pot and People could bring their expertise from where they were at, and then we could debate it and then pick the best solution for us. So my motivation at that point was be a sponge, just learn as much as I can from all these people. I was the worst engineer, I was the most junior person. I was like, this is perfect. Um, so through, we found product market fit 2019, we grew to 30 engineers, and that's when I became a senior IC, so a senior engineer on our financial products team. I'll, I'll say another, I'm going to use this word luck a lot. For people who want to break into management, luck is like the other thing. So it is very hard to get your first manager job. You do have to be at the right place at the right time. And no one is ever going to hire, hire you diagonally, meaning if you're a senior engineer, you will never go get a manager job. Certainly, you have to already be a manager and then move laterally. So I was a senior IC on the financial products team, probably fourth on the totem pole. So there was a manager and two senior people. They all left for whatever reason, right? They left. Now I'm the most senior person. There was no manager. I become the manager of the team in August of 2020. 
then we fundraised and as many, whoever has been in startups in 2021 knows cash was really cheap. We needed to grow really aggressively. So I grew from six engineers reporting into me to, to 45 amongst five different teams with like five different managers kind of at its peak. Crazy best method within the span of like, I guess like 14 months, a little over a year. And so that was an interesting step. So moving from a manager, a direct M1 line manager to a manager of managers. And there were certainly growing pains along the way. I was directly managing 20 people at one point, but my half of my league was just one-on-ones. Oh my God. And then there was all this other stuff going on. It was very hard for me to figure out how to. So anyway, I was kind of burning myself out yeah. a little bit. So I had to learn how to be a lot more high leverage and work through my managers and other tech leads to, to get things done. That's incredible. So you went from managing a few to 45 and overseeing the managers of that's right. those man of those people. Yeah, that was, that was crazy. It was a crazy time. Yeah, I'm curious. So let me let's think about everyone, the 45 people that you managed. What are some of the characteristics that like really stood out to you for the top performers of those 45 people? Everyone, I think in their young careers, it's like, oh, I want to be surrounded by great people. You might not have access to them, but I want to be a high performer. So what characteristics to you from the 45 people really stood out? Yeah, I think one is ownership. People, you will, you will make many mistakes. You will always make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. That's yeah. fine. I don't care if you make a mistake. I care how you respond to that mistake. Do you own it? You step in and fix it. You set guardrails up so no one else can make these same mistakes. That's a really important quality to have. Mm. And I think successful engineers definitely have that attribute to them. Humility, you do not know. And it's very important for you to go learn from other folks or, or and, and like be very curious about that. So I think people who have that sort of curiosity and humility and, and willingness to kind of learn and admit when they don't know and, and see hope, I think has been really yeah. uh, impactful as well. And then I think like at startups in general, you have to be flexible. The more senior you get, the more ambiguous the problems are given to you. So I, we have this yeah. like different leveling system. So I'll kind of explain it. So as an L3, your entry level, I say your sphere of influence is one person, right? You're given a task, task is kind of broken down. You just execute. Great. L4, which is the next level is three people. So you're given a problem and then you need to break it down and then have roughly three people where it's scope of work. So you're kind of breaking those tasks down and you, you have L3 that can help you execute. L5 is 8, L6 is 20, L7 is 40 plus, right? So you kind of like start to operate at these different levels. And as a manager or as a successful engineer, you need to kind of understand and take things off of your manager's plate in a lot of ways and then break it down because they won't always have time to like deep dive spend a lot of thought into all the problems. And so the more ambiguous the problem is when you take it off their plate, the more impact you can have. Yeah. So let's say you are given an ambiguous problem. What's like the first step that you take personally to like solving this problem, gathering all the pieces to figuring out how can we solve the ambiguous problem? That's a really good question. So I'm going to couple that answer with another very big phenomenon that happened. So March 2020, the world shuts down, right? COVID happens. Now we're all asynchronous. So yeah. not only do you have ambiguous problems, you need to communicate this in an asynchronous manner. So I developed this framework. It was called Motivation, context, conclusion. So motivation was a one sentence description, mm. like what is the reason we're trying to solve this problem? And if the motivation was wrong, like That's let's cool. say the motivation was like, hey, like we need to solve X, Y, and Z to bring down the cost for the customer. And I say, hey, actually that's not right. Like I don't want to bring down the cost for the customer. I want to 
but they improve like their authorization rate or something in the payments world. Mm-hmm. So you can, so that's like the very first step. And it's very important that you agree on the motivation. Then context is just a yeah. bulletless point of facts, no biases, no opinions, just it's like, this is how much it's processed. This is the cost of this. Like, boom, 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 boom. You just put down every single fact that you can, you know, derive related to the motivation. And then you write a conclusion. So the conclusion is like, given the question that you, you asked, given the context, what is the logical conclusion that sort of pops out? So anyway, to your question, I, I did not have time to go do, I cannot go figure out all these problems, right? Like as a manager, yeah. the rotten milk floats at the top, you only see problems. And so I would delegate all these things out to my engineers. I'd have them write this doc. I could follow it. It's like a two-page document. I could review it in 15 minutes. Sweet. It's very easy for me to be like, okay, like I saw where you maybe missed the conclusion. And so here's how we're going to adjust, right? So that is how you have to have a very structured way of thinking when dealing with ambiguous problems. And that's the way that we kind of try to tackle it. And it also helps with our asynchronous communication. That's amazing. So you really started off like, what's the end goal in mind? I feel like enough, not enough people do that, but that's what you were hitting at with the motivational pieces. What Absolutely. are we really solving for here? And is this the right thing that we want to be solving for? That's exactly right. Actually, and to take that point even further. So when I work with my product manager counterparts, they, so what I always tell them is you bring me a hypothesis, right? You have some question about what consumers yeah. want. What is their behavior going to be? Whatever. And my job is to tell you what is the quickest way that we can get that answer. You do not need to go mm. build a full-fledged feature a lot of the time. You can put a button there and be like, hey, how many times do they click the button? And if they don't click the button, you don't need to build the feature, right? You, you can get the answers <laughs> in very creative ways. So absolutely, you, you, I like the way that you kind of explained it. Like figuring out the motivation is honestly the most important part. And people who can articulate it very clearly can solve ambiguous problems. Yeah, that's, there was a LinkedIn post today. Someone was like, what do the greatest storytellers do? And it's like, they start with the end goal in mind. I think, I mean, that's exactly what you did as well. It's what do we want to get out of this? What is the motivation? And I think that's a really cool structure. You developed this framework. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That is like such a cool thing. I'd say that like I did develop it. Yes, that is true. It was after I had failed miserably many times to, to, you know, like figure out because to the point earlier, like I was burning myself out. I was going too deep into these areas. And so instead, I took a step back and said, hey, what if I can help with this framework or develop this framework to allow me to have higher leverage? And so it was a lot of trial and error. But yes, that would be the framework that we landed on. That's amazing. And let's talk about more leverage as well, because you got, in back, going back to 2020, you got your AI certificate from Stanford um, and, and AI. Let's talk about that. Can you just give us an overview about like what this was? And let's start with the motivation. Why did, why did you pursue this? And what is the AI certificate? So as mentioned, I, was, I started this thing probably in 2018, I, I would guess, while I was still at Microsoft. Okay, so you asked me a question like, mm-hmm. why is it very good to go to big tech companies? Answer, they give you really good benefits. So Microsoft would give me $10,000 to do tuition stipends and all this stuff, right? I mean, that's a lot of money. And a lot of people don't take it. Oh my God. This is amazing, right? So given that I was working on this designer thing, given that it was in the AI field, given Stanford is in Palo Alto, which is like one stop away on Caltrade, I was like, okay, this is like a no-brainer. So chart my whole uh, AI certificate and I finished, I think, three classes while I'm at Microsoft. So they pay for three out of the four of them and then I out of pocket the last one, right? Which was no big deal. So anyway, the way that the certificate worked was you would learn kind of general artificial intelligence for your first two courses and then you could kind of pick specializations for the last two. 
And because I was in the PowerPoint space, I picked natural language processing as my sort of specialization. So one thing that we did that was super interesting for my final project, so I worked with another colleague at Microsoft, was the thesis was, could you take a huge corpus of PowerPoint slides given their formatting? So the assumption was, if someone bolded or underlined or italicized a word, it was quote unquote important. So you take this huge corpus, you run it through your machine learning model, and then you generate, you kind of generate suggestions for individuals to bold certain words in, in their slide, right? You can imagine designer be like, hey, yep, this is the thing that you want to bring emphasis to. So that was kind of this like very practical way of combining the PowerPoint side with this more theoretical natural language processing side and it kind of combined the two experiences in a really nice way. That's interesting. So what's the admission process to like, if like, I want to go to Stanford, I want to get my AI, AI certificate, what's the admissions process to like enroll in these courses? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think, so through my program, it was kind of executive, which just means you need to be working full time. So I had to prove that I was at Microsoft and I, I think give a reference, I mean, my reference, I had to show my undergraduate transcripts kind of describe, hey, like, why are you interested in AI? And I think that's pretty much it. So pretty standard, like, just make sure that you're not some fraudster who is, yeah. whatever, kind of maliciously taking advantage of the program. And then uh, it, w- it was also tailored for, like I said, like, kind of working. And so they would publish the lectures online, so you wouldn't have to go to Palo Alto every time. But you did, you could. That was actually a very cool benefit, is I could go to the Stanford Library meet up with the professor, so cool. et cetera, in person. Yeah, which was like amazing, right? To get access to those types of folks, those high caliber individuals. I think that was it though, yeah, for the admission process. Yeah, so you get you get the certificate, you get, you're specialized in it. I mean, what is the value of the AI certificate like given you now? Um, are you still applying some of the principles now or what's been the value of it since you've been able <laughs> it was, it became- to get it? A little bit more like my wide studies, like I, it's great to have in my back pocket. It is not what I do kind of yeah. in, in my day to day. So the time that both had mentioned with financial products, I got really deep into fintech back in 2019. Yeah. Fintech and NLP aren't super related, but actually now that I think about it, I had this conversation with the founder yesterday and we were talking about like interesting applications of chat, GPT, or these other sort of like really amazing yep innovations in the financial product space. And one truth is nobody understands how payments work, like what your interchange is, when things will settle, like what, how you can optimize this stuff. And so I was actually riffing with him on this idea of having a chatbot that just basically explains to you, like, what are the different scheme fees and this and this, and like, what could you do to optimize these various things? Mm. So maybe like two, three years down the line, I can actually finally marry the two and intersect them. But to be honest with you, I I don't really do anything in my day job with NLP right now. Yeah, but it's nothing like you regret getting. I mean, it's nice to have in your back pocket, but it's not, it's not where it's like, oh my gosh, I wish I didn't spend the time or energy yeah, on that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Stanford Alumni Network and the UT Alumni Network, I don't want to, oh, but they're both amazing. And they would, they had an internal job board. There was really cool people I, I got to meet throughout these programs. Access to the professors as mentioned. Um, those things, certainly there's no regret for that. That's awesome. And we are winding down on time here, but I am curious of two comparisons. You're at Stanford, you're at UT, you're in San Francisco, you're at Austin. Take me through that. When did you come to Austin from San Francisco? And what has been one of the biggest differences between San Francisco and Austin regarding the yeah. tech scene? So 
after COVID kind of hit my wife and I, I, I got married back in Austin, September of 2019. So we were kind of living in COVID San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for about a year and a half. And we wanted to get a house. And more importantly, we wanted to get our dog, Monty, who I know you got to meet on the football yeah. court. So that was a big awesome. mission, right? Like go buy a house, get a dog, get a backyard, whatever. And so came back. Obviously, we had very close, close connections to Austin. We both mm-hmm. met actually at UT. Her family is in Austin. Awesome. My family is in Houston. So it, it made a lot of sense. Now, comparing the two, one of the things I'm really excited about and actually would love to ask you about is I, I was pretty... You know, I knew a lot of founders and startup folks in San Francisco and the community was buzzing. I think some people actually criticize it too much. Like there's that kind of joke that you go to any coffee shop in San Francisco and someone's talking about disrupting blah, blah, blah industry. But <laughs> as a young professional and kind of in that space myself, I really enjoyed it in my kind of early 20s. Austin, I feel like it's developing and it's 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 really cool to see how it's growing from, you know, Floor is zero, right? From the ground up. And so yeah. that is one big difference as well. I, I've, I think like being a part of the growth of this sort of a community instead of kind of just being inherited into this very bur- already burgeoning sort of community is, is one big difference. And then the other thing is, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll give you a kind of weird comparison. So I worked at a WeWorks out of both San Francisco and Austin. So in San Francisco, 8 p.m., it's still pretty full, right? People are still grinding away, whatever, doing their thing. In Austin, yep. I think by five, it's, it's empty. They kind of moved on with their lives and went and picked on their, like they went to their other passions. But I think it's actually very healthy. Like as I think about what I want out of my yeah. next career and everything, like certainly work-life balance is something that is important. And I do think Austin has kind of figured out a way to balance their innovation and grind and work hard culture with the more chill, relaxed sort of style and um, getting to enjoy when it's not too hot, some of that, especially like, Doors, Barton Springs, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, a question just popped in my head from that. So does it shift at all? So young 20s, just fresh out of school, should you be in that, obviously take care of yourself, but you should you be in that grind, grind, grind mindset? And then once you get to 26, 27, maybe venture outside of that? Or how should someone approach that and think really about how question. hard they should be working at, at 23? I, it's a good question. I think I did not develop necessarily healthy habits in that grind sort of culture and so i did take me some time now in the later stage to kind of develop those boundaries and all this stuff i think it was so you think about like a treadmill right like the fact you can kind of like accelerate your career obviously there are sacrifices you do need to work really hard and that but i would say like if you think about like what you want out of your career and let's take me for example going down engineering leadership the amount of roles like are up higher and higher, they all diminish, right? And so the way I, I always kind of yeah. viewed it was, okay, I can go really fast right now. And then whenever I'm kind of done, we'll just stop the treadmill and then just be content at this level. Because it's yeah. very hard to get back on the treadmill if you kind of take this up. And so I, I feel like to grow, it's like a manager, 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 et cetera. You had to move really quickly. I, it's not for everyone. I, I don't know if I could make a general statement about it. I do think, what I observe is it's like one, when you move into management from being icy, very hard to go back. Yeah. And then two, if you kind of like get off the treadmill all the way, it can be hard to go back to just because the opportunities are a lot more narrow as you get kind of closer to the top. So I'm not sure if that was a good answer, but that's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah. 
It definitely is because like I'm 23 right now and like I'm in the mindset of like, I'm going to work super hard. Like I'm going to sacrifice like not having a girlfriend. I want to get a dog. I'm not going to get a dog because like I just want to be focused on like my work and like surround myself in as many opportunities as possible. But it's refreshing to hear that once you get off the treadmill, it's a lot harder to get back on the treadmill. So while I have all this energy, like I'm super young right now, I can bounce around. It's nice to be able to just stay on that treadmill and to keep going on the treadmill. But I can get off at any time. Yeah, you can always get off, right? And I think that's something that people forget. But I would encourage you also, the times that I performed the best were the times that I also spent the most of the time in wine and in pickleball because you do need that sort of break, nourishment, refreshment to like get your mind off of work. I actually really do believe that people who work 100-hour weeks maybe are not as productive as people who work 60-hour weeks or 40-hour weeks that have a little bit more of that balance. I do a thousand percent agree with that. And so you've been in Austin for a while now. You are, you've been part of the startup community, pickleball community, wine community, so many different communities. Reflect on that a little bit. I mean, talk about the people that are here in Austin and some conversations you've had where it's like, oh my gosh, like that has just opened up my mind. If it's on the pickleball courts, if it's talking about wine, if it's talking about the startup community, what are some of like some of the most insightful conversations you've had while in Austin? Yeah. So I think the pickleball community, it brings together a lot of, like folks from kind of different walks of life, right? Like, okay, I, I will also say yeah. tech people tend to be a little bit insulated and perhaps they have their own echo chamber and in SF, they're, they're, it was mainly the tech people for the most part, right? Or at least who I interacted with. And so I really enjoy kind of getting to chat with people who do very different things. And so that's a lot of the value that I drive pickleball and I've got to meet folks such as yourself, but other folks too, for, and we grab beers and all this stuff afterwards. And it's really yeah. nice and refreshing to kind of hear about their challenges, their problems, and how they kind of view the things. And so that's really cool. In the wine community, there's kind of two big societies I'm a part of. So Austin, Texas Wine Society, plug for them, or ATX Songs, also a plug for them. And like they compete with Houston and Dallas in the Texas scene. Houston and Dallas are much more established. They have Michelin restaurants with crazy wine lists and all this stuff. Austin, yeah. I just really love how down to earth people are even in the wine community. They're really sharp. They have these certifications, but they don't want to necessarily be as ostentatious as wine has kind of negatively been portrayed of being. And so that's a kind of an interesting take on that as yeah. well. And I think like really cool. There's actually a new wine bar that just opened up called Flows. And uh, Kate Bottle, I actually might work with Kate Bottle for five hours a week too to kind of do something else for fun and break into the wine industry. It's really cool. Those people are so chill and like, I just really appreciate their yeah. perspective and, and their kind of approach to wine. And then in the startup community, I've been really fortunate to meet a few founders through my tenant at Bolt, so ex kind of colleagues who have come here like and started their companies and then connected to these communities. And so they do a monthly drink sort of session. And I just really appreciate how how helpful everyone is to each other. You like yeah. I met this person, they had this idea. I thought Bold could benefit from it. And so I connected him to our HR leader. And, you know, that that was really great. And he kind of did a very similar favor for me when I was interested in something else, right? And so I would say my reflection is not necessarily, I thought SF was fine. Like, I don't think it was cutthroat or anything. I don't think it was as friendly or yeah. warm or kind of outgoing in terms of personality. That would be how I compare those three different communities. That is a phenomenal reflection on all the different ones. That's what that's what I really enjoy about the Austin Tech. That's one that I'm ingrained in the most is people here are super helpful. I mean, you've experienced that you helped out someone, but they're, you didn't even ask for a favor back. Maybe you did, but like they returned the favor back to you. And I think yeah. that's something that makes Austin, the tech scene amazing here. People are super helpful and very open to helping each other. Absolutely. 
And one more question before we end it. This has been a great conversation. You think about your career, you think about where you come, where you want to go. I mean, when you retire, let's say if you want to retire 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, any of those times, what do you want to be most proud of? Um, and yeah, what do you, what would you want to be most proud of? I, I think I still am very passionate about building a product or an experience that customers just fall in love with. Right. And so taking FinTech for an example, mm -hmm. it's actually quite embarrassing where the U S is compared to India, China, et cetera, like their adoption of digital payments, yeah. real-time payments, they can settle really quick. Oh, it's just amazing. And to whatever extent we are very hamstrung by existing policies. And so that is an area that you think very invigorated and passionate because I think there's a lot of opportunity yeah. there. But um, I think one other thing kind of is I maybe am moving from the entry level into more of maybe mature leadership or whatever you want to call it now is I really do want to be, I want to pay it forward. I want to be a mentor to a lot of folks too, because a lot of people help me. Cool. I'm still in touch with my manager. This was like six years ago and she gives me really good advice yeah. on a lot of different stuff, right? And so like, Every like everyone you see at the top, like they all have help, right? They were all helped on their journey. Up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them help people also kind of on their journey up, right? And so that is also something that I, means a lot to me. I, I think I, I could probably see myself retiring and then doing wine teaching. So to my point earlier, that's being <laughs> more in education. Like I would love to just teach seminars online and encourage the next batch of aspiring sommeliers cool. uh, to, to pursue their craft. Um, so I think those two things are really important. Building products and experiences customers just love and really solving pain points right because like they are not the experts in this but they just want to have a magical yeah. experience that you know the moment you kind of do it and then also teaching and kind of being probably useful to the next generation of leaders that are coming up i love that well you have been useful this whole podcast i loved having you on to talk about all things microsoft full advice you have communities Naraj, you were awesome and thank you so so much for joining us yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was a really, really fun conversation. Perfect. Let me stop.